If you would turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 and starting at verse 25. So Ephesians 4, 25. Paul calls us in Ephesians 4 to take off the old man with its deceitful desires and to put on the new man. And if we have learned Christ, right, if, if that has happened to us, if we have been saved, what does that do to how we relate to one another? How does that change how we relate to one another within the church, outside of the church, within our families, within our church family? Because if we understand what God has done in Christ, we understand that we have been changed. And if we have been changed, then that changes everything. Changes everything about what we do, how we speak, and even how we think. And so one of the in, inescapable conclusions of reading this letter, and indeed I'd say the whole Bible, right, the whole of the scriptures, is that if we have been changed by God, we will live differently. Right? It's a necessary conclusion of salvation that we live differently than before we were saved. Do we get that? Do we understand that? It's a necessary conclusion of salvation that we will live differently than how we did before we were saved. Well, today we begin to unpack some of the specifics of what this looks like. And so I want us to see in our passage today that the Christian life is one of different speech and action in relating to others. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the entirety of uh, Hebrews 4, 25 through 32. But we're only going to actually focus in today on verses 25 to 27. So Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll get through this whole passage so today, I just want us to look at the first three verses of our passage. So Ephesians 4, 25, Ephesians 4, 25 through verse 32. And I may have misspoke, so it happens. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. And we'll look at just verses 25 to 27 today. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25, this is God's word. So receive it as such. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that we so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So again, Ephesians 4 opens up with a call to walk worthy of the call that we have been called to in Christ. And what Paul has been doing throughout this, uh, this chapter is working out what that means. So right, that has meaning upon our unity within the church. And now as we come to this section that we're in today, we get to this reality that there are certain behaviors and attitudes that a Christian has or that a Christian should have that distinguishes them from the rest of the world. And so we begin to look at right what it means that we have been saved. What's the reality that flows from that? And indeed, if Paul writes what is true in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right? So if that is true of us, then we are being built into something, right? We're growing up into something. There is an end goal to which we aim. You have a goal, brothers and sisters. And if we're to take seriously God's command to unity within the church, then what we see in our passage today has a direct bearing on that. Right? So again, we could look at Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we do that? Well, we'll see it in our passage, right? Because this has direct bearing on that. So, right, do we see how all this is inter, interwoven, tied together? There will be challenges among us and within us there will be issues that we will need to rise to meet with grace and with the gospel of our Lord. All right, so there are community, church-destroying sins that we must be done with as Christians. There are sins which should not be named among us. So let's consider these matters before us today. Again, we're only going to look at the first two, uh, the first three verses. But all these are interwoven, and so we'll, I'll be referencing some of the later ones as we go through our passage today. And when we get to the later ones, we'll think back to the earlier ones, right? So these are all kind of interwoven, even as they are kind of a loose collection, it seems, of various commands. But let's see first, speak truth. And that's in verse 25. Speak truth. Verse 25. And Paul begins, therefore. Right, therefore. Because of the reality of what has come before, now do this. And what is the reality that has come before? Put off the old man and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteous and holiness. That's verse 24 there, right? So therefore, because you have put on the new self, because we have been changed by God, because we have learned Christ, we are to put away falsehood. We must shut out lying. We must be done with it. Now, we may ask the question, why do we lie? And even as I ask that question, you probably run through like a thousand scenarios in your head of reasons why we lie. And the, the question too may be, well, why is lying so common? And to that we must answer, right, it's part of our sin nature for sure. We have to realize though that it's more fundamental than that in that if what Paul writes is true in Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So fundamental to this issue of lying is it's not just our sin nature that's involved, it's that Satan himself is involved. The one whom we follow. Listen to this out of John 8, 44. John 8, 44. Jesus in discussion uh, with his opponents, his enemies, those who disregarded the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says to them. You are, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth 
because there is no truth in him. When he lies, listen, this is so important. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a liar. Satan doesn't lie from time to time. It's not that he has an occasional lying problem. It's his character. It's his nature. And by the way, that means for you, if you follow the prince of the power of the air, if you are outside of Christ, you are of your father, the devil. And lying characterizes you. So why do we lie? It's part of our sin nature, but it's part of also the nature, the very nature of the one that we follow. If we're outside of Christ, we're following a liar. It's in his character. There's no truth in him. Go back to the Garden of Eden, right? Every time you see the interaction with Satan and man, guess what he's doing? He's lying. Think of the temptations of Jesus, right? When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Lies. Undergirding every word. So by the way, should we take him out of his word? The answer should be obvious, no. But why do we lie? So, so we lie in relation to our sin nature, right? We, it's, it's because we are, ourselves are corrupted. We lie because we follow after the father of lies. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the, we could say it this way, right? The old cliche, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? We lie because we follow after our father who's characterized by lies. Why do we lie? Why do we speak falsehood? Because lies are easy, right? Lies are easier. Why do we tell lies? Because they're easier. Because lies placate others. No, honey, of course you don't look fat. When we know it's the exact opposite, right? Why do we do that? Why do we have those conversations? Why do we lie? Because they placate others. They're easy to do. They build us up. Right? How big was the fish you caught? huge it was massive i mean it was really a minnow but you know it was massive it's huge and almost sunk the boat why do we tell lies because oh man you're a hero right you're you're a you're important you're a big guy the reasons are multitudinous the reasons are legion lies characterize the devil and truth characterizes christ Right? He is the truth, the way, and the life, after all. So if we are in Christ then, if we follow after Christ, if we have been changed by Christ, if we have learned Christ, guess what should characterize us now in Christ? Truth, truthfulness, honesty. So, I mean, that seems like a pretty easy answer, right? But how do we put away lies? How do we, how do we be done with falsehood? Well, we replace it for the truth. We replace it with the truth. We tell the truth. It really is that simple. Some of this means we really have to examine our motives for lying. We have to ask ourselves the question, why do I lie? Why did I lie in this situation? What, what is my heart motivation for not telling the truth? Sometimes that may be, well, my heart motivation is I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to tell the lie, not the truth. But we also have to say, well, the truth is what I have to tell, and I entrust my, myself uh, to a good God, to a merciful God. I think they're of the, of the numbering of the people of Israel by David. And God gives him three choices of what, what should befall the people for his sin in numbering the people. 
And he says, you know, you could have an uh, enemy army come after you. You could have a plague or you could let God destroy you for three days. And David chooses God. And he says his reason for that is because you're a merciful God. Because you're a merciful God. I'd rather myself in the hands of a merciful God than an unmerciful band of humans. Right? So, so we have to ask ourselves, what's the motivation for a line? And right, David could have lied there. He could have said, I don't know what you're talking about, God. It wasn't me. How did that work out for King Saul? Not well. So we need to pray to God. We need to ask him to reveal our hearts to us. We need to say, God, I have a problem with lying. Help me understand why that is. What is it that I'm trying to protect? What is it that I'm idolizing over you, over the truth? Reveal that to me so I can be done with it. And Paul here gives us motivation for our telling the truth. So let's think through this, right? He writes that we are to speak the truth to one another, right? Speak the truth. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now I'll say this. If you have a Bible with cross references, you'll probably see a reference back to Zechariah 8.16, Zechariah 8.16, and there it says, it reads, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. So God makes explicit there that the Israelites should speak the truth to one another. And why should the Israelites speak the truth to one another? Because they're part of the same community. So I'll just say for, for point of argument here, when we see this word neighbor in verse 25, we're not to think of this word neighbor like we do in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember there, Jesus, in answer to the lawyer who is trying to justify himself about this word neighbor, uh, the lawyer had a very narrow definition of this word neighbor, so that way it encompassed only the people he liked and he liked to help. Right? And the parable of the Good Samaritan is, who is your neighbor? Anyone you come into contact with. And that's the one you owe love to. So I don't believe here that Paul is using that word neighbor in the same way as in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why do I say that? Because look at the end of the verse. It says, it reads, for we are members one of another. And so I, so I would argue here that neighbor is more narrow than that. It's narrow to the church because we're members of one another in the church. That's where that is true. That's not true in, in the sense that Paul is here referring to about everyone in the world around us. Now, let me pause here and just answer the question, right? Does that mean Paul is giving us license to lie to those outside of the church? The answer is no. Right? That's not at all what he is arguing. But what should be especially mark us out as a church, as a community of believers, as members of one another, is truthfulness, not falsehood. Right? In in this reason, because we are members of one another, for we are members of one another, what this indicates to us is that when we tell falsehoods, Within the community of believers, we actually hurt one another. A lie hurts ourselves because we hurt them in the lie. I don't think we often think of our truth-telling or our lie-telling as something that hurts someone else and therefore hurts me when we talk about it in the context of the church. I don't think we think about it that way. But Paul here is indicating for us that lying, falsehood, hurts the church. It hurts the church. More than that, if we consider that first 
terrible episode of lying within the early church, we begin to understand the seriousness of its nature. So, turn to Acts 5. Turn to Acts chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 1 through 11 briefly. Acts 5, starting in verse 1. Listen to this and listen closely to what Peter says here. Right? Listen closely to what Peter says. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down dead at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Notice in that passage that Peter does not scold Ananias for lying to him. He doesn't scold him. Notice the, the point, right? He doesn't scold him and say, why did you hold back some of the proceeds? You shouldn't have held back some of the proceeds. As we might expect some uh, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers to say, well, why didn't you give me all your money, right? It's not what Peter says. Because Peter, Peter pointed, points out here, right? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You could do with it as you will. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could do with it what you would, what you would will to do. So what does he say to this man? You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. So let that sink in for a moment. Because in one sense, is this a lie that maybe nobody else in the world would have known? Aside from his wife. Aside from those involved in the transaction. But even though no one else may have known about it, there was someone who did know about it. Brothers and sisters, God knows your hearts. He knows the truth of the falsehood you speak. And when you lie to each other, when you fail to speak the truth, you begin to undo the bonds of the community of faith. You ultimately lie to Christ, not just your fellow Christian. Or as Peter says, you lie to the Holy Spirit. And, I, and again, I realize we don't think this way about our lying, right? We don't think when we tell a falsehood that we're speaking it to God or that it should bear upon us the way it did for Ananias and Sapphira. I've asked this before, but consider the fear that fell upon the early church during this time. How many lies do you think were told in the week following I can tell you it would be pretty close to zero because the fear of God was upon them. And they knew better than to tell a lie. 
Lying destroys relationships. It destroys our relationship with one another. And so we must take it off. We must put it away. We must be done with falsehood. And instead we take up the truth. So how do we do this? We tell the truth. We tell the truth. Let us realize the consequences of lying and let us tell the truth. Or as the Apostle Paul tells us to the, in the Colossians, in the letter to the Colossians, Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Colossians 3.9. You've put off the old self. It doesn't define you anymore. You're not following after the prince of the power of the air anymore. You're following after the prince of truth. So live like it. And again, you may ask, is lying such a, is it really such a big deal? Is this something that we should really spend effort at stamping out in our hearts? And the answer to that has to be yes. Right? If Acts 5 doesn't convince us, let us go to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And this will be familiar to us, I'd say. But notice this issue of lying in Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Twice in this list, we are told that the Lord hates lying. By the way, we should know that the ninth of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Lying is a sin, and sin will be punished. So is lying such a big deal? Yes. In case we're not convinced, listen closely to this from Revelation 21, 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Is lying such a big deal? The Apostle John, from the words of God, say that those whose portion is hell is liars. Does God care about truthfulness? Does God care about the truth? Does God care about falsehoods and lying? The answer is, has to be in our mind every time yes he does care yes he will punish so does it matter if i tell that little white lie yes like right we want to uh mitigate our sin and we want want to lessen the impact of it so we do things and say things like well it's just a little white lie it's not that big of a deal it doesn't really harm anyone but brothers and sisters in Christ, let me tell you affirmatively from the scripture, lying kills and it'll kill you. And if your life is marked by lying, if you are defined by falsehood, you will find yourself under the judgment of God. Does lying within the church matter? Acts 5 should inform us that, yes, Ananias and Sapphira, I bet, would tell us if they had voice to speak today, which, by the way, they do speak because the word tells us their story. But Ananias and Sapphira would say, yes, lying within the church matters. So how do we tell the truth? How do we practice this?
Well, we've already been given this answer in Ephesians 4, in verse 15. So how do we do this? Because am I advocating here for such radical honesty that it doesn't matter what we say as long as it's the truth? I'm not saying that per se, but what we do, what we say has to be true. Verse 15 of Ephesians 4, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ. We speak the truth in love, right? We let love be the measure of our speaking. So sometimes what this means, how we practice this, Christian, this is for you. I'm talking to you, okay? How we practice it, sometimes we need to tell blunt truth, blunt truth. Sometimes we need to slap or be slapped in the face with truth. We see Jesus do this in his denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? He says, woe to you. Right? Woe. That's not a good thing. Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. You dirty cups. Why does he say that? Because they are so caught up in the lies and the web of lies that they have built in their mind about righteousness, about who God is, that the only thing that's going to shake them loose is blunt truth. They need to hear blunt truth. Right? That's, that's what the prophets of old did, right? They spoke the truth of God and sometimes in a very blunt way. You're dead. Uh, we saw that in Hosea, right? Your babies are going to be ripped out of your wombs and smashed on the ground. And why did they do that? Because the only thing that was going to shake through them was the blunt truth. Now we know if they're hardened of heart, they don't care about the truth, and they're not going to hear that anyways. But you know what the one thing that they can't say? I misunderstood what he said. I didn't know what Hosea meant when he said that our cities were going to be turned to dust and the gates are going to be burned and we're going to be taken off into a foreign land. No, they had no such excuse. They had the blunt truth of God. The Pharisees could not say, by the way, I didn't know he wasn't, I didn't know he was the Christ. I didn't know he was the Christ. They couldn't say that. But sometimes when we speak the truth, we need to use tact, right? We need to use tact. We need to be measured and careful in our words. Do you remember the proverb? A gentle answer turneth away anger. Sometimes a gentle, true word will do more than a thousand blunt words can do. Right? This speaking the truth in love also takes into consideration what is best for the other person. We'll consider later in our passage here, right? In, in Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So, right, understand this. When you speak the truth, do it in this manner. So we fight against the community, the unity-destroying sin of lying by telling the truth. We realize that we are members of one another. In the church, we are joined together in a way that what builds you up builds me up. And what tears you down tears me down. Do we understand that? Right? We have to understand that. So let us speak truth. And now let us move on and see in verses 26 and 27, anger and sin. Anger and sin. Verse 26 continues. We have another unity-defining issue here for us. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Paul again goes back to the Old Testament. This is not actually the first time that we see this kind of phraseology. The first time we see it is actually in Psalm 4.4. So if the Israelites 
knew their songbook well enough, they would realize, hey, that's from a psalm, right? And Psalm 4.4 reads, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. There, the context is the psalmist David is writing about, uh, and that word be angry there can also be translated as something like tremble or quake. Uh, the King James Version uses the word or the phrase stand in awe. And the context there is something like be aware and tremble and angry that you see God exalting the righteous and humiliating the unrighteous. And why does he say that? Because he goes on to say, ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Because what he's doing is he's writing to the unrighteous man to say, marvel at the work of God, consider it, and repent. Turn to God, trust in him. And so be exalted, elevated with the righteous. So be saved. But back in Ephesians, uh, Paul uses this word, and this word is really a word about anger, right? So it is about ang angry. Um, we know what anger is. I'm not going to explain what anger is, right? I think we understand. We've all experienced anger. Uh, for men, it's one of our two allowed emotions, right, in our culture. Anger is one of them. But lest we get the wrong idea here, Paul is not commanding us to be angry. Right? So this is not Paul telling us, go be angry. Uh, this word, or this, this, the, the word in the Greek that is translated, be angry, is in the passive voice. And so uh, commentators, scholars, sometimes would render that, or we might render it something like this, which means, should you become angry, then what? Don't sin. And how do we know this is the meaning that Paul intends? And again, this is why we have to have the whole of this, this passage in our understanding, in our context here, because Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So either Paul is in the course of a few verses contradicting himself, so let me go ahead and tell you that's not the answer. Right? That's not the right answer. Or we have to understand what's in view here. Right? So, so what is in view here? What's the kind of anger that he's talking about here? Well, there are occasions when anger is right. We know that God gets angry. Romans 1.18 has a cognate, uh, a closely related word to our word here for anger. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Just pause there and as an aside say, here's that issue of truth again. Isn't that interesting? How truth and falsehood define those outside of Christ, but should never define those inside of Christ. All right, it says, for the wrath of God, or for the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So there is righteous anger. There is righteous zeal. There are certainly occasions when we see a great injustice unfold in our world, and we ought be angry. We might even become angry within the church, within the context of the church, when we see the people of God not acting like the people of God. I remember this from growing up in my, in my church in Florida. Uh, we were starting a college and career group to meet together, to worship, to learn God's word, to live out what God has commanded us to live out. We had updated one of the rooms in the building. We were given a room to, to work on, to update, to paint, to keep up. We were a small church and not a rich church, and so any effort at updating made a big difference. 
But the trustees, those in charge of the facilities of the grounds, were very upset with us because we took down some old bulletin boards and replaced them with new ones. And I remember the anger I felt in that moment, like people are dying and lost and going to hell around us, and you're worried about bulletin boards. That's a moment of righteous anger when the people of God are not acting like the people of God. But the command is enjoined, sin not. Sin not. So this tells us that anger can lead us to sin. And we know that too, right? Because the great preponderance of our anger is not righteous anger. Let me go ahead and tell you, when you get angry, probably nine times out of ten, it's not righteous anger, okay? So let's not pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm righteously angry all the time. Probably not the case, right? We, we know this. We know that sin leads to anger because it's not about God's righteousness. It's not about zeal for God. It's about us. Listen to what James writes to the church in James 1, 19 and 20. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Listen to the why here. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So brothers and sisters, you may be given to anger. It may come on you more quickly than it does for others. But the Bible is not here advocating you, uh, advocating for you to dwell in anger, to embrace it, to run after it. Indeed, we need to heed the warning of James that it doesn't produce God's righteousness in us. We need to reckon with ourselves that our anger will little lead to good. And more than that, look at what Paul commends to us, commands us in Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's that about? It's a time limit. He says, if you should happen to be angry, make sure you don't sin. And indeed, here's how one of the ways that you can make sure that you don't sin in your anger. Put it on a time limit. Put a timer up. Right? Is this about literal sundown? Right, let's, let's get really into the weeds and start, uh, you know, kind of like how the Jewish observance of the Sabbath goes this way, right? So does this mean if we get angry after sundown, we have to the next sundown that we can be angry for? No. Right? Paul's not giving us a literal time frame. He's giving us uh, a metaphorical time frame. When should we be, be done with anger? As soon as possible. That's the time frame. As soon as possible. Because, and, and so we can sharpen our understanding of the saying in this way. The longer we allow anger a place in our minds and hearts, the closer we approach sin. The longer that anger festers, the quicker we run into sinfulness. And look at what he adds to this in verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. We call back to the beginning of mankind. The longer we let anger in our hearts, the longer we dwell there, sin gets a foothold in us. The devil gets an opportunity. He gets a place to dwell. And what happens? Well, let's go back and consider the first murder. We consider the first lie in the church. Now let's consider the first murder, but not just in the church, but in the whole of creation. In Genesis chapter 4, in Genesis chapter 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel. Again, it's familiar to us, but I want us to pay attention to what God gives us in this. God doesn't just give us stories so, so we can go, oh, that was a nice story. Or so we can create little picture books of it. Although I don't think the story of Cain and Abel probably doesn't make the picture book. Um, you know, they probably skip that one. But listen to this. Uh, Genesis 4, 3 through 8. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought to, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Why do we need to have anger on a time limit? Because we might just kill over it. It really is that serious of a sin. Right? God told Cain, sin is at the door. It's crouching at the door. It's waiting for you. It's watching for you. Its desire is for you. It wants to rule over you. It wants dominion over you. It wants what is contrary to your good. Right? That's the reality of sin. It runs contrary to us. Sin is not for our benefit. Listen, understand, sin has great marketers. Sin has great marketing. And the marketing of sin says, you'll love it. You'll be the best. You'll, you'll have greatness. You'll, it will be so pleasing to you. It's good marketing, but it's falsehood. Cain allowed anger to lead to sin. He gave Satan an opportunity to destroy the community. Sin promised him satisfaction, but it only brought him destruction. And this is what anger does within the community of believers. There are times when we are right to be angry, when we have been sinned against, when we can understand getting angry, when we see God blasphemed and made little of, we can, uh, it's not just we can get, we should get angry. When we see the people of God reveling and worshiping false gods, anger is just. And by the way, if you don't get that reference, go to the Exodus. And the worship of the golden calf. But if we dwell in anger, if we stay there, if it does not motivate us to right action, if we are not slow to anger, we will destroy ourselves and the church. We will give Satan an opportunity in our own lives and in the lives of our fellowship. Again, we need the command at the end of our passage in Ephesians 4 to help us navigate this. Because how is it that we can be sinned against and not get angry and not dwell in anger and not give ourselves over to it? Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. We need to forgive one another. We need to remember that God and Christ has forgiven us. What does that mean? God is right to be angry at us. We have sinned against him. We have sinned against his ways. Our sin is heinous, evil in his sight. And so we should not be surprised for God to be wrathful towards us. For him not to be angry towards us, we might actually say that's injustice. Mercy and grace aren't fair. Yet Christ Jesus bore God's wrath for sin. For our sin, brothers and sisters, and what have others done to us to match the heights of the evil that we have committed against God? The answer is nothing. And so if God has forgiven us much, we can forgive others little, right? The little that they do against us. In this sense, forgiveness should come easy, though we confess, right? It doesn't. The Christian life is one of different speech and action and relating to others. And so we need to understand that where sin festers, Satan reigns. 
And all who follow after Satan, the father of lies, will end up like him, condemned forever, thrown into the pit of fire from which none can escape. And that's you, friend. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. A righteous God judges you, and you will bear his wrath. You will suffer his righteous anger. You will know what true and good anger is like, unless you repent unless you trust in the work of Christ Jesus, because Christ died in the place of sinners. He bore God's wrath so that his people will not. And if you trust in Jesus as your Lord, he will be your advocate before the Father. So repent of your lying, repent of your anger, ask God to forgive you, trust in Christ Jesus to save you. And then speak true and don't live in anger. Don't sin in your anger. Brothers and sisters, realize that this is not a suggestion for us. These are not, these are good things for you to think about. These are commands from our God that we have to be obedient to. We have to deal with these, with these unity destroying sins. You need to speak true things. And by the way, here's one aspect of this for you in our culture. Our culture loves to promote false things. Our culture thrives in falsehood. It's stamped everywhere around us. We have marketing, right? What is, what is the goal of marketing? To get the closest to telling a lie without going over and being uh, sued for it, right? That's why you see all those beautiful uh, Burger King, McDonald's, etc. sandwiches, and then you go and get it, and it's all disheveled and stuff's missing, and you're like, where's the beautiful, beautiful thing? And then you go back and watch the, uh, watch the commercial, and you realize there's a little teeny tiny print that you can't even read that says, this is not what the actual product looked like, right? Or this is a paid testimonial. Not everyone actually gets these benefits. Marketing loves to tell falsehoods. Social media is built around the creation of public personas that are detached from reality. And even while we may yet know that, we look at the, the, what we see on social media, we, we look at uh, the images and the descriptions, and we ourselves get depressed, we get envious, we get covetousness, we get anxiety because our lives don't match up to the lives of those we are watching. Even though they're fake. Uh, here recently, I heard an example of this. There's a couple who posted on Facebook over a holiday weekend. Oh, uh, how great it is to be in love and marriage and this happy couple. And then come to find out, no, they, they want to get a divorce. It's not so happy because husband's cheating on wife and there is no happiness. So what's the point of the Facebook post, right? There are whole government apparatus whose sole job is to pump lies onto the internet for whatever Satan-directed purpose they follow. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? But you, Christian, are called to speak the truth. You're called to speak it in love and understand that it's true for you outside of the church. And it's especially true for you within the church. We should be a people that is so countercultural that we tell the truth always. And that people say, those people tell the truth there. They're going to tell the truth. We build one another up in the truth. We don't lie. We don't speak falses. We put all those things away. We remember what happened in the early church when someone lied. They didn't just lie to man. They lied to God. And they suffered God's swift and immediate judgment for it. And may that ring in our minds a little bit longer. May that ring in your minds a little bit longer. So the next time when someone asked you a question or when you get ready to say something and you know what's about to blow it out of your mouth is falsehood, maybe you'll stop 
By the way, sometimes silence is better. And we have to confess, too, that being in relationship with others is a messy thing. Right? We will get angry with one another. And sometimes that anger is sinful from the very outset, and we need to confess it and repent of it, turn away from it, and, and strive to do better the next time. Sometimes anger rises within us because we don't get the thing that we want. And by the way, how true that is in church. It's an old joke, but I want a blue carpet, not maroon carpet. I'm mad. Oh, well. We get angry because maybe someone spoke the truth to us and we didn't want to hear it. But other times anger happens and it's not outrightly evil. There are occasions for just anger. However, we need to heed the scriptures here and we need to deal with it quickly. We need to put an end to it in our hearts quickly. And we have to deal with this within our families too, don't we? Again, relationships are messy. And even within our own individual families, right? Do you get angry at your father? Do you get angry at your brother? Do you get angry at your wife? And how you deal with that anger matters. Again, sometimes it's just an occasion we have to repent. And we have to ask the other person for forgiveness. But there are times when we have to address that situation. Say, brother, you made me angry. And here's why. And we need to be quick to forgive each other. We need to be careful because the longer anger is around, the closer we get to sin. It's that much easier for Satan to get an opportunity over us. So let's not be satisfied with lying. Let us not lie to ourselves and think ourselves above these commands. Let us be quick to put off the old man with his angry practices. Let us seek Christ. Let us put on Christ-likeness. Let us live as our Lord commanded us. Let us glorify our God in our speech and actions as we relate to one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you uh, this day and we confess our sins. Father, we, we confess that we fail to live up to your righteous holy standard. Father, And we further confess that uh, we are entirely dependent on the work of Christ in this. That, Father God, we know we could no, in no way earn our salvation because every, every time we look around in our, in our hearts and our lives as we examine ourselves, we have to confess that there is more sin in us than we even know what to do with. But, God, we are so grateful unto you. We thank you, Lord God, for the work of Christ Jesus and for the grace that you give us in Christ because we know that there is more grace in Christ then there is sin in us, and we can confess that. Lord, we can rejoice in that. We thank you for your work in Christ in us. God, truly, where would we be without you in your work, Father? Thank you. Thank you, Lord God. And who is sufficient for these things aside from you? Father, we need your spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. We need your we need your spirit to put to death the old man and to put on the new man. Father, forgive us for our, our falsehoods that we tell. Father, forgive us for anger that is unjust and sinful. And Father, help us, strengthen us. Father, help your church, grow your church, build your church in truth and peace. Oh, Father God, that we would glorify you that others may look upon us and say, these people know Jesus. And Lord, may they say that not so we can be made much of, but we can make much of you, that they can see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. Father, that is what we aim. Lord, we pray for those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. We pray for those who are, who are believing the lies that they have been told and the lies that they themselves tell. Father, we, we pray for those who are so consumed with anger and hatred for others. Lord God, that you would have mercy upon them and give them your spirit to understand and know Christ. 
Father, we pray. We pray for them, Lord. We pray that they would know the truth and that the truth would set them free. Father God, help us. Be near to us, we pray. So we pray in the name of our only Lord, your only begotten Son, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus the Christ. Amen.